ideas, inspiration, innovation. This is The Game Changer. And now here's your host, Chickie Fitzgerald. Good afternoon, this is Chickie Fitzgerald. It's Friday, November 7th, 2014, and we have a real treat for you today. Uh, Normally, we don't do memoirs. We are a show that features business authors talking about leadership and growth, but occasionally we come across a book that we just have to include in our lineup. And today's author is Karen Lynch, and she is the author of a book called Good Cop, bad daughter. And Karen, we are so happy to have you. And you talk about yourself as an unlikely police officer. I know there's a lot behind that story. So why don't you just start on the beginning of your journey from this chaotic childhood that you had uh, to becoming a police officer in San Francisco? Sure, Chickie. Thanks so much for having me on. Um, my mother and father came to San Francisco to be beatniks in the um, in the fifties, and they were very counterculture. And um, my mother had a history, a psychiatric history, that caused her to be um, arrested quite frequently. So she had no fondness for the police, and I suppose <laughs> unconsciously sure that's an understatement. <laughs> yeah, and I think unconsciously, um, you know, maybe it was a rebellion against her. I don't know. I, I thought a lot about the reasons why um, I eventually became a cop. But I think ultimately for me, the police represented safety, um, security. Generally, when the police came when I was a child, they were taking me away from her to a safer situation. So I think right. I grew up actually with a different impression of the cops than my mother had. Well, that that uh, is pretty clear. You know, I found it really interesting in, in the beginning of your story where you had been uh, working as a waitress, and I'll let you add the color to that uh, from the story, and, and you had been putting yourself through college, and you actually had a college diploma, and you were looking at a newspaper that had uh, a headline of graduates face the worst job market since the Great Depression, which obviously is not what you want to see when you are holding this newly minted diploma. So tell us a little bit about that day. Yeah, you know, it's so funny because my son just graduated from college last year, and it seems like every year that's the headline, graduates face worst (laughs) job market since Great Depression. It's like, how can this be every year? But it was 1980 when I graduated, and it was around the time where President Reagan had let all the air traffic controllers go, and there was lots of unemployment in all fields. And I did have a degree, but my degree was in French, which was fairly useless. And my intention had been to be a nurse, but I continually, my, my downfall was organic chemistry, which I failed three times um, and finally had to give up my, my try at being a nurse. And so I worked my way. I I had some scholarship money, but I needed to work the whole four years. And and the last year I worked as a serving wench in a Renaissance-themed bar, which was fairly ridiculous. I had to wear a really, really tight corset, and I'm fairly big busted. So it was pretty ridiculous. I was spilling out of this corset, but making very good tips. Right. (laughs) And um, 
And I knew I couldn't. Obviously, I didn't want to do this as a career. I wanted a real job. I needed health insurance. I needed some security. I had no safety net, no family whatsoever. My mother was the only family I had, and she had proved to be extremely unreliable. She had spent her life on social security and help from boyfriends and for a while was married to my father who took care of her. But I didn't want to end up dependent in the way that she had been. No kidding. And I'd also ended up, as a young girl, I'd ended up homeless for a short period of time. So I knew that if I didn't didn't get my act together, I, I could end up in a very precarious situation, and I needed a job badly. Right. So so you're looking at this newspaper. You actually put the quarter in the box. You dig the paper out, and you're reading through the news, and then you see an ad that just pops out at you and stops you cold. So what was that ad for? Yes, it was a picture of four multicultural different races of women wearing uh, San Francisco police uniforms and smiling like they were having a great time and they were all loving sisters. And uh, the caption said, join the SFPD. And I was really drawn to that photograph because um, for a number of reasons, but the strongest being that I really wanted a sense of family. I think that's what I longed for the most in my childhood because my mother had deliberately cut herself off from all of her family and then divorced my father who left the picture. So I really had no family and I felt very lonely as a child. I was an only child on top of everything else, which probably was a good thing because I think if I'd had siblings, it would have made life harder in some ways. Um, So so here you are, you're looking at this picture and you're drawn, but at the same time, imagining how your mom was going to react. Oh, yeah. It was just ridiculous. I'm looking at it thinking, oh, maybe I could be one of these women. And at the same time, I'm thinking, oh, my God, I can just hear my mother. And at that point, I was 21, and I was still very attached to my mother's opinion, even though I knew she was insane. I knew she was, you know, she had done some horrible, horrible things to me. You know, she was all I had, and her opinion still meant so much to me. So in my mind, I could hear her screaming, oh, those stormtrooper Nazis, now they're recruiting women to do their their dirty work, you know, that kind of thing. Wow. So, so, I was, so you go ahead and you go to work, right? And and so throughout the day of serving, you know, who knows what, you're you're thinking about your future. So what's going through your mind? Well, you know, I I really thought a lot about the job and um and I ended up the next day actually I was sitting in Vesuvio's bar and I was sipping an Irish coffee with my best friend and trying to figure out what I was going to do now that I knew I could not go to nursing school. And as I'm sitting there on Columbus Avenue, this black and white police car comes cruising up the hill. And behind the wheel, I see this dark-haired woman. She has her hair down, which was not regulation, but that was how she wore it. And she looks just like me. And I turn to my friend and I say, Monica, this is me. I am supposed to do this. Look, look. And she looks out to see the police car. And and um, and from that point on, I really felt like, it was like the universe had sent me this this lightning bolt telling me right. this is what I was supposed to do. So then I became somewhat obsessive about it. I decided that was what I had to do. And it was there was a lot of um, sort of a, a – there was a little bit of a chip on my shoulder because a lot of the articles and the interviews um, about women in the department were sort of negative. There were a lot of people 
in the general population, mostly men, of course, who thought that women could not do the job, that we were too weak right. and too emotional, and that we would we would run away screaming with our tails between our legs if we became in if we had to fight a criminal and so forth. And I felt very sort of offended and like I needed to prove something. And I was quite strong at that time. And and I really felt like, boy, you know, why can't I do this job? Give me a chance to show I can do it. Well, you know, it's so so interesting, though, with with this whole counterculture background, because you were raised in in this life where where there weren't those norms and, and so now you're you're dropped in the middle of this world where you have to be literally the enforcer, right, of all the things that you had seen going on. And in fact, you know, you had done some things when when you were uh, at Berkeley, and and you know, those were different times, way different times than than now, <laughs> clearly. Right, right. And I was a child in the Haight Ashbury um, during the summer of love, and my parents, my mother and my stepfather. Were um, they owned a head shop in in um, in North Beach, and they sold buttons and posters and bongs and zigzag papers and all of that sort of stuff. And those are back in the days when uh, marijuana was a felony. And now we're starting to you know see that it's legalized everywhere. But even when I applied to the police department, it was still um, it was right. pretty you know more illegal than it is now. And um, you know, and of course, I had smoked pot as a teenager and smoked it at Berkeley because everybody did. And even right. though it really didn't appeal to me that much, it was always in the background with the with the hippie kids who raised me. Um, my mother and father hired, they were a little bit older than hippies. They weren't, they were more of the uh, beat generation, but right. they hired a lot of hippie kids that ran the store and those kids really raised me. So I was always around them. Right. And so for me to, to sort of leave my tribe and go to this very alternate universe um, really felt like a a little bit of a betrayal on some level and um, but I did make a vow to myself the day I was sworn in as a cop I swore I would never do anything illegal again Um, and I stuck to that I never you know it 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 wasn't hard for me because I was never like hooked on pot or anything right I just tried it and in those days they didn't even ask you during the interview if you had tried things I don't know if they would have hired me or not who knows but it, it, you know, it wasn't like it was a huge part of my life, but it was a huge part of the lives of the people I grew up with. So right. that was right, and and of course, you know, I mean, that's what gets us into trouble is the people we hang out with. Um, so sure. you talk about the testing process uh, actually being threefold or fourfold if you include the challenge of telling your mother. Um, and <laughs> you know, you did have to take a written test, and you were up against a bunch of people for just a couple of hundred positions. So t- tell us about that process. Yeah, there's um, four, three parts to it, and I, yeah, in the book I say fourfold if you inca- if you include the challenge of telling my mother, and that was right. definitely the hardest of the four challenges. But the written test was very straightforward. It was a, an audiovisual test, multiple choice, um, and about a thousand people had shown up for that, and not very many women. I was quite surprised, despite the recruiting, less mm-hmm. than ten percent of the applicants were women, and that kind of remains the same even now, thirty years later. There are um, the representation of women in law enforcement is very small. It's probably about 11% nationwide. Um, so I'm even so surprised I, I, it's that high, actually. Yeah, it, you know, and I really thought it would increase over time because 
and it's actually decreased a bit. I think at at the height mm-hmm. it was at about 15% or something. And then after that, we we uh, take a um, a physical exam, um, which um, there's also a medical exam, but the physical agility test involves um, running around several laps inside a gym and running across a balance beam without falling off, dragging a 150-pound dummy and putting him on this little table, um, and then climbing. And you have to jump over a six-foot wall, and then there's a grip strength test. And, um, and then after that, they do an oral interview, which involves sitting in front of a panel. And, you know, I, wasn't, I had no clue what I was signing up for. So I wasn't prepared, really, <laughs> for the, the, the oral interview. I came wearing a ridiculous dress that was too feminine, and my, my boobs were showing, and I spent the whole time tugging at the lace on, my, you know, on the top of my dress, trying to cover my breasts up, feeling very exposed. And, oh, wow. like, why did I wear, you know, why am I dressed as a girl? I should have worn, a, you know, pants and looked like a guy and, you know, more masculine right. and I should have butched it up a little, you know. I was just really very conscious of the fact that I, I, um, I was not what they wanted to see. And I also had expected that the interview would be more personal, like, well, what qualities do you think you have to be a police officer? <laughs> and so, yeah, and so in my mind, I'd prepared a rather involved speech about what qualities I had that would make me so fantastic at this job. And none of that happened. It was nothing about me personally. They gave each of the uh, the candidates a scenario and then they asked us how we would handle it and I really blew that oral exam <laughs> I, I left that test feeling like there is no way I will ever be hired even though I had I knew I had done well on the written I knew I had done well on the agility I thought right. I really I just made a fool of myself here so what what was the scariest thing about the agility test for you well, the agility test, um, the challenge there, and I was smart enough that I knew they were offering some sort of pre-testing uh, training, so I, I was so smart enough that I did sign up for that because I didn't know what the agility test was and I wanted to see what I was going to have to do. And I, you know, I had no problem pulling the dummy and, and loading them up, and that was easy for me. I'd been toting, I say in the book, you know, months of toting around uh, fishbowl-sized margarita glasses and manhandling drunken customers had paid off. I was really strong, you know. <laughs> so I loaded up this dummy, and then I thought, oh, wow, I'm going to be great at this. And then we got to the wall, and the wall is about six feet tall, and it's very uh, smooth and shellacked. There's nothing to put a foothold on. And the men, traditionally, most of them, can just vault right over this wall. The women, for the most part, are either not tall enough. I'm five foot. I was five foot seven then. I've shrunk just a bit, but I'm you know reasonably tall. But I couldn't just leap over it. And so all of these women are at this training, and none of us are getting over the wall. We're just hanging there, and we and we're not strong enough to do a pull up. And I mean, it was just kind of ridiculous. And we all were ready to give up. And at that point, the woman who was running the training told us, "You girls can get up over that wall just as fast as the guys can." And then she showed us another way to get over that wall besides just vaulting. And the way she did it was she pulled herself up with her hands, but at the same time she sort of poked her left, her, her right leg into the middle of the wall, about three feet up, and then just swung her left leg over and leaped right over. Right. And she did it so she did it so quickly that it was as fast as 
the man who just vault, vaulted over. And and by the end of that night, we could all do it. And the more we practiced, the faster we got. And it was one of those things where I saw there's more than one way to get over the wall. And, of course, that's a metaphor for life. Right. Right. So, obviously, you, you passed all of those things. And you still had to tell your mom. So, tell us yeah. about it. <laughs> Oh, that was horrible. And I, I won't say the language she used on the radio. Um, I do not even like to read it out aloud when I do my readings because sometimes there are children in the room. But the bottom line was her reaction was, that's wonderful. My daughter's becoming an effing Nazi. And, right. And, you know, and then I, I hung up the phone after that conversation and I really, I, I struggled with myself and I wondered, why am I doing this? What is the matter with me? Am, Am I doing this just to rebel against her? Is this like something I'm I'm just getting even with her? What what am I doing? And then I realized that the whole time I'd been growing up, she had been training me to be a cop. Not intentionally, but right. everything I had experienced had given me exactly what I needed to be really good at the job. Wow. So, you know, I don't know a whole lot about mental illness, but um I, I have certainly seen cases where uh, it runs in the family, uh, right. to be blunt. And, and I know that had to be a concern, uh, you know, growing up for you. And you even begin, uh, you know, the first part of your story by saying you were committed to a mental institution before you were even born uh, because yeah. uh, you were in utero, uh, you know, when she was uh, in, in a hospital for the mentally ill. So you, you obviously get hired as a cop. And, and you begin this journey, and uh, you know I, I am certainly interested in any stories you want to tell us about those early days. But this whole thing leads up to what was inevitable, uh, which was your mother actually getting uh, in trouble again, and and you actually being a part of that. So yeah, um, well my whole my whole childhood really was. Um, one episode after another of my mother being hospitalized and my ending up either with nowhere to go or in a children's home or with friends. And and so it was, and, and, and one of the symptoms of my mother's bipolar behavior was she would take whatever money she had or get money from boyfriends or husbands or whoever and take this money and then she would take me around the world. So as a result, I ended up abandoned in Japan for a period of time, a short period of time. (laughs) I ended up um, in a children's home in England, which was quite an experience. And I was there for for a couple of months. And, um, and she was in hospitals in all of these different places. And, and her favorite thing to do travel wise was to get on ships. So um, one of my chapters is called the floating world, because at one point she ended up in the brig of a ship we were on. And I was 11 or 12 at that point. And so for three days, I wandered the ship alone while she was in the brig. And um, it was, you know, really quite humiliating because in those days, um, it wasn't like the the modern day cruise ships where there are buffets and people go and eat. I was totally humiliated because you were to sit with the same people for every meal. And I could not return to that table without explaining my mother's absence. And I was totally embarrassed that she was had been arrested. And um, so I would just sneak around, and I think they had a 4 o'clock tea, and I would sneak to the 4 o'clock tea and, like, steal little sandwiches and stuff and live on those for three days. 
And we were stuck on the ship until we got to an American port, which was Fort Lauderdale. That was an attempt. She was attempting to take me to England to live for a year the first time, and that was aborted. We went through the Panama Canal. She was arrested before the Panama Canal, ended up in the brig. And so when we got to Florida, they they kicked us off the boat there and and uh and that's the whole other aspect of the story. So so that was a lot of what my childhood was. It was just incredibly erratic. And when I became a cop, it did not really occur to me that I might someday have to arrest my mother. For some reason, <laughs> that scenario <laughs> never ever crossed my mind. Partially because she lived in a different part of town than I worked, I think. And right. also, I just hadn't really thought it out. I was perpetually um, afraid I would be embarrassed by her, that she would show up at the police academy and start swearing at my friends and saying, oh, you Nazis, blah, blah, blah. Um, and that kind of fear, which was more from childhood, that she would embarrass me. But realistically, I should have thought that this other thing was a possibility. I might actually have to bring her in some at some point. And mm-hmm. as it turns out, I did not have to bring her in, but I was there during one of the arrests that happened. And, um, you know, it just, yeah, it. I don't know that, it, it certainly wouldn't have changed anything I did, but I do, at some point I asked myself, did I become a cop? Because I wanted my mother to be arrested, I wanted to arrest my mother, that I believed she belonged in jail. And I think a lot of the readers, a lot of people who have read the book and, and given me feedback felt that she did belong in jail after reading the book. Oh, and maybe yeah. I mean, no kidding. I mean, just just the the stories about, you know, pretending that they were going to cook you in the oven when you were little. You know, it's like, really, who does that? Yeah, and that was really, that was sort of a game and, and, you know, but there were other things that were quite disturbing and um, questionable. And in any case, um, you know, and then I really thought about it, and I don't think it was so much that I felt like I I wanted to put her in jail, but I do feel like maybe unconsciously I had to arm myself to feel strong enough to stand up to this woman. And it's not until about halfway through the police academy where she and I have a a confrontation and I finally do stand up for myself. And so the story is really, you know, it's it's about growing up with a bipolar mother. It's about being one of the first women to go through police training and how how my mother life with my mother shaped me and helped me prepare for that um really that uh intense training. But it's um it, you know, it's a lot of other things too. Well, you know, Karen, recently I I met a woman who has uh, become kind of a part of my mentor family. I I don't have just one mentor. I have uh different ones in my life who who kind of work on different pieces of me. Uh, you know, some from helping me to be a good CEO, others, you know, just helping me manage my life and and my faith and you know all the things that make uh, make up who I am, but the, this woman that I met recently who has has really stepped up and and is helping me actually shape what the executive girlfriends group is going to look like moving forward. Uh, she recently had me go through an exercise where I had to uh, write uh, letters uh, to people who had uh, impacted me in in not so positive ways, and those letters were never going to be mailed. Um, so you could you know you could pour yourself out but she also had me go through this um scenario where i would read the letter to her and then i would have to go back and really put myself into the letter and not filter 
when you're writing a book, and particularly a memoir, and I, I've talked to others who've had you know dysfunctional families, and they they've actually committed to their parents that they wouldn't publish it until they were dead, right? Because it it really brings out so much. Um, but there has to be something cathartic, uh, not only about writing the book, but because, as you just mentioned, you are you actually do readings from the book. So each time you talk about that, you actually remove its power, is what I have found through this exercise in my own life. So so tell me about the the actual writing of the book. Did, did it hurt? Was it uh, a part of your healing process? Had you already gotten strong? Um, tell me that progression. Yeah, I think by the time I wrote this book, which was five years ago, I was pretty strong. I I wrote it after I had a bout with breast cancer, and I ended up retiring from the police department after 29 years of police work. And um, I did not know how long I'd be around. None of us ever do. But, of course, after you get a cancer diagnosis, you sort of um, realize that you're not going to be here. And I really wanted my children to have this story. So initially, I just wrote it so that they would have the story. And then as I went through the process, I really, I think I'd already forgiven my mother. She's still alive, but um, I, I had grown to realize that she, whatever she did, she really had no control over it. That wasn't, she was mentally ill. And yes, she could have done things to make things better. She could have taken her medication. She she certainly didn't do things that made our lives easier or her own life easier. But that, I think that was all part of her illness. So, you know, it was just a... Uh, it was a really interesting process to write this book because I, I thought I was writing one book. I thought it was just this one story. At the end of it, I realized I had written a love letter to my stepfather, who actually wasn't my stepfather. He was a boyfriend of my mother's, and right. um, they had broken up. And he was the one who stepped in to save me when I was homeless after the last episode when I was 15 where my mother was brought to Napa. And the, the police didn't realize she had a daughter, so I came home to an empty apartment and really had nowhere to go. And at that point, I was afraid I was going to end up back in another bad situation, at right. maybe a children's home or maybe a foster home with an abusive person in it. I didn't know. So I thought I would take control of my own situation and I would just leave. And so I did leave. And I was on the streets for a little while. And it, it really wasn't a great situation. And, and so I called Jim, who was you know, a big part of my life from age seven on and who had rescued us repeatedly over the years. He had flown out and rescued us again and again. And I always had viewed him as a bit of a sucker, like, my God, this man must have been so in love with my mother to do this stuff all the time. And it wasn't until I wrote the book, and he's no longer with us, sadly, but um, after I wrote the book, I realized that he had been rescuing me all of those times. And he had been adopted as a child, and he sort of adopted me, not legally, but in every other way. Right. And he took care of me and allowed me to get through high school and then go on to college. And um, I think that was a big factor in my adopting, my husband and I adopting a daughter years later. And I just started to see all of these different ways in which everything wove together. And that song by Carol King, Tapestry, kept going through my mind as I did the revisions, and I kept seeing how each stitch was somehow connected to the last one. And I saw how my drill sergeant in the academy, um, who was such a nemesis and so bad and hated women so much, how he really was my mother in a different <laughs> disguise, and how those people who I reviled so much and who 
had made life so hard for me had also made me the person I was. And I had to thank them. And that really, in the end, you know, after being bullied through 19 weeks at the police academy by this man who just really wanted me to quit, and I ended up being the only girl to graduate from my class because he Mm. wanted the women out so badly. Um, You know, after all that, I just... I just grew to really thank those people because I really think that police work is not the kind of job you should take if you can be easily bullied out of it. You're right. going to face a lot of um, abuse in the street, people calling you names, people spitting on you, people doing all sorts of things. And if if it just takes someone telling you you can't do this job to make you quit, then you don't belong there. So in the right. end, I ended up appreciating those challenges. Well, I, I think the the overarching uh, feeling about this book is you could have written it as a victim, and and you could have have bemoaned you know all of the things that you went through as a child, but you didn't write it emotionally. Uh, you really just factually stated what happened and and your reactions to it. And I loved one of the comments on Amazon that said that it not only was incredibly well written, but it was almost like a humorous police report. <laughs> and uh, this particular uh, reviewer said that you know she didn't cry at all during the first half when you were telling really this whole tragic story of your life as a child. But uh, in the second half, uh, you know she actually was crying, but uh, mostly it was tears of laughter which uh, people may not expect out of this kind of of a story. Yeah, I do think having a sense of humor is a huge gift um, (laughs) from God, you know, just to get through life. It really, uh, you know, and I had a lot of, I felt I had spiritual guidance in my life. And I can't tell you, I can't explain how that came about. And I don't write about that in the book because, you know, as I said, I was committed to a mental institution before I was born, and I don't want people to think I'm completely nuts. But I do feel like I had something guiding me towards the right path my whole right. life, and I, that was one of the things that saved me. Well, Karen, uh, I know our readers are going to want to learn a little bit more about you. Do you have a website or a blog where they can find out more information about you? And, you know, clearly your book is available on Amazon and any other major uh, bookseller. And the book is entitled Good Cop, Bad Daughter, The Memoirs of an Unlikely Police Officer. So, Karen, how can they learn more about you? Well, I do have a Facebook page um, that's called Good Cop, Bad Daughter. Um, They can follow me there or on my own personal Facebook page, which is Karen Lynch. I'm the woman holding a little Chinese girl. That's my daughter. Mm. And um, I I love having new followers. And I I keep a very active Facebook page. I'm still on the fence about whether I want to do a web page. I'm sure I'm going to have to eventually. But I really enjoy interacting with people. on Facebook and I'm there quite a bit and we do different games on my page like Friday today is um, uh, Slash Fiction Friday so I have each of my friends whoever wants to play they add two words to a story that we make and together we make a story and and, uh, just different things like that so I enjoy Facebook a lot because I really like interacting with my readers. Right. Yeah, and and I I would agree that the investment in either a blog or a website, you don't get to see that same kind of interaction. Uh, you know, I I know on my own blog, I have a ton of readers, but I have tried to get them to comment and I can't. And uh, I still love to write, so that that's my outlet for writing. But you're you're taking the right tact, I think. So Karen, you did say that you you had retired uh, from the police department. 
what are you doing now, and is there another book in your future? Yes, I am writing full time, and um, in the in the upcoming uh, months, next next fall, I believe, um, I have a piece coming out in an anthology that's being edited by Amy Ferris, and that anthology is about depression and bringing it out of the closet and just having people. There's some really big names writing um, essays for that book, and it's called Thirty Shades of Blue. Mm. And um, so I have an essay in it called Thorazine, and um, and. I'm also working on another nonfiction right now. I have some ideas for some fiction I want to work on. So there's a lot. I have a lot of balls in the air. It's just uh, figuring out what, where right. I want and to focus. And how old is your daughter? She's 13. Oh, fun. Well, I have an adopted son from Russia uh, who is oh, 14. Wow. Oh, congratulations. That's wonderful. Yeah, so adopted for, for totally different reasons, but uh, because we, I, I have a natural daughter who is 16, and we really uh, didn't want her to be an only child. So uh, that, that's kind of the story behind that. But, well, I am, I am delighted to hear about your upcoming project. Uh, I know that depression is one of those things that doesn't get talked about much. And, uh, you know, I, I certainly have had friends who have, have battled it or who have had family members who have battled it. Um, you know, we all know at least one person, uh, you know, who has taken their life. And, and uh, fairly recently I had a business colleague who was the last person on earth I ever would have thought would have suffered from depression. And, you know, so it's kind of that silent killer. Uh, so glad yeah. to hear that you're addressing that uh, and really can't wait to, to hear about the next chapter of your own life, Karen. So, again, thank you so much for taking your time, and uh, we look forward to the next chapter of, of uh, Karen Lynch's life. Thank you so much for having me on your show, Chicky. I really enjoyed talking with you. Well, great. It's my pleasure, and have a great weekend. And for those of you who'd like to learn more about the Executive Girlfriends Group, we do have a website with information uh, and links to some of our past shows, executivegirlfriendsgroup.com. We also do have a Facebook uh, presence for Executive Girlfriends Group, and then we have a private member site uh, also hosted on Facebook. So if you are interested, check us out. And uh, we do have many, many shows, uh, over 400 uh, different shows primarily on business topics that are available on blogtalkradio.com slash solutions, S-O-L-U-T-I-O-N-Z, live. Thanks much and have a blessed weekend. You've been listening to The Game Changer. Ideas. Inspiration. Innovation. With Chickie Fitzgerald. Mm-hmm.